0: Welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Solodago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island in the Penobscot Bay on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking about one of my favorite herbs, Monarda commonly known as B-Bom. I'm also sharing a story about my experience with a summer flu that I had this week and how I worked with Yarrow and B bomb to get me through. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I've learned from my mentors. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. I need to be careful with the topics that I pick for this podcast. The universe seems to be making sure I'm walking my talk, or maybe it was just serendipity. But Sunday, after recording the podcast on Yarrow on Wednesday, last Wednesday night, Sunday afternoon, all of Monday, I was down for the count with a nasty virus of some sort that acted very much like a flu. I got through it, and here I am Wednesday, back to gardening and podcasting. But pardon my scratchy, stuffy voice. It's definitely on the mend, but still a little rough. I'll get more into how I coped with this bug with the use of yarrow, the herb highlighted last week, and bee balm, the herb that I had already decided to highlight this week. But first, I want to start talking about one of my all-time favorite plants. And yes, as you get to know me, you'll realize I have many all-time favorite plants. But today, I'm talking about bee balm, and I can't wait to share this wonderful medicinal herb with you. Bee balm is a wonderful garden plant that's beautiful. It's bright colored or could be very soft and pastel colored. It spreads like a mint with rhizomes underground, but it doesn't spread crazy like spearmints do. It's native to North America. It is one of our native mints and spices and wonderful medicinal plants. It attracts pollinators, including butterflies and bees and hummingbirds. And it's great to put in any garden possible, unless it's a super shady garden, it probably won't do that well. It also is a great herb that you can use similar to you would use oregano and thyme in cooking. The flowers are sweet and delicate and can be a nice garnish uh, to drinks and salads. And it makes a wonderful tea herb and also a great medicine. There are about 16 different species plus hybrids and varieties of Monarda, which is the genus of the bee-bombs. And it is a plant that has a lot of names, both common and then, because there are so many species, also botanical names. But there are two that I have really connected with and I think are the most commonly discussed, and then there are a few others that I will mention But the two that I'm going to really focus on today are Monarda Didyma and Monarda Fistulosa. Now, I love talking about plant names. I think that it can give us some interesting insight both into the history of a plant, folklore, common uses, or just the way a plant looks. So I'd like to get into some of the names and what they may mean or represent of this great plant. So as I was saying, you know, I think the two most popular Monardas are Monarda Didyma and Monarda Fistulosa. All Monardas that, from my understanding, are native to North America. Monarda Didyma, Ten is a scarlet red color flower. And the Monarda flowers, they kind of have a crown of these beautiful, almost firework-like flowers that are little tubules that kind of point out. It's like perfect for a hummingbird beak to stick its nose in or the, um, oh, I can't think of the word, but whatever it is, the straw-like mouth that butterflies have perfect for them to use and so that's why it attracts them so well so the uh, monarda didyma commonly called bee balm um, or oswego tea is red although now there are lots of different hybrids and varieties i i would say it's probably the one that you can get in most plant nurseries most commonly because it has so many different uh, colors and sizes that you can now get. There's also Monarda fistulosa, and that has more of a pale purple color to it. And it doesn't have it more, it's a smaller flower head, and it's not as much of a crown like, it's more like kind of covers the whole flower head definitely check them out if you're not familiar with them, um, pictures online or what have you. They are beautiful flowers. Another popular monarda is monarda punctata, which is um, also called horseman, and it's pretty unique uh, in its appearance. It kind of has the um, sepals are this like Bend down, are this beautiful like purple color, and then the flower petals themselves are yellow, and the, and um, there must be some spots on them based on its name punctata. It's not a plant that I've grown or have much experience with, and then there's uh, Monarda citriadora which is um, I believe it's a darker purple and has almost like a more Condensed flower head that kind of is goes up in a spire a little bit more and that so the Menar and I've never seen that plant although I would love to get to know it so the Monarda citriadora that tends to be more a central and southern American species like you might find it in Florida the Monarda punctata. The um, unique-looking horsemint is east of the Rockies and more like southern U.S., like kind of Georgia, South Carolina, and down. Uh, Monarda fistulosa seems like it pretty much covers the majority of North America. I'd say that is the most widely distributed. And then the Monarda didyma is more... um, Eastern Canada and Eastern U.S., kind of Maine to Minnesota and down um, to Missouri and Georgia, but not super south. So lots of common names, and they can kind of all be used interchangeably with all of these different species. Although um, some tend to, especially in literature or when people speak of them, tend to be a little bit more specific. So from what I can tell, Oswego tea um, and bee balm are, and bergamot are common names for Monarda didyma, the red bee balm, which tends to be a little sweeter, a little milder and gentler in action. Like a really good, just nice friendly tea herb. And then there's wild bergamot, um, or bee balm sweet leaf is another name that would be more for the fistulosa, which is the pale purple and the stronger flavored and medicinal herb. There's also the horse mint, which I see mostly with punctata, also called spotted bee balm. And Although, again, some people would maybe categorize all bee balms as horse mints. And then there's the citrus bee balm, or the Medarda citriadora. So the common name Oswego tea is derived because it was an herb um, of the Oswego people, and it was introduced to the colonizers in... New York State um, area region which is now known as New York State. It was commonly found along the Oswego River and I apparently was also kind of affiliated once it was named this specifically it was affiliated with Fort Oswego it does represent the indigenous people um, of that area but again this is a very um small area compared to the whole area that this plant grows in. It also, interestingly, talking about its relationship to the colonizers, it became a very favorite tea after the Boston Tea Party in 1773, when the colonizers were relying on more native plants as their teas instead of uh, tea that was imported from Asia. So that is maybe also why it became popular as Oswego tea. The name Bergamo is a name that is in relation to a plant that is completely unrelated to bee balm. But it has a similar flavor or scent to it. The bergamot is a citrus tree that is from uh, Bergamo, Italy, and is used for perfumes. And I guess um, Europeans that got to know this plant thought that they had similar scent, and so it got this name uh, Bergamo. The bergamot citrus tree is similar to neroli and was used similarly. It's also, the citrus tree is also what's used to flavor Earl Grey tea. Um, But otherwise they are unrelated botanically. And again, it's more of a colonizer name because it's like, oh, well, what does this plant remind us of from where we're from? And then there is sweetleaf, which refers more to the fistulosa. And this is a common name that Matthew Wood refers to as a name that um, is translated from um, Native American type names, where it refers to the beauty and the sweetness and the fairness of the plant. And so that's one that he really likes to bring into um, common usage. Then there is the genus Menarda. And that was actually named after a Spanish physician, explorer, and botanist who uh, was under King Philip II. And so his name was Nicolas Menardes. And he lived in the mid-1500s. He wrote and published the first published book in Europe that was about the plants of the quote-unquote newfound world, uh, which was here where we live. And it's called Joyful News Out of the Newfound World, which was later translated into English in 1577. The botanical name, Didyma, the species name, uh, refers to in pairs, and that's in reference to paired flower stamens that the plant has. Fistulosa uh, is in reference to tubular because the flowers are tubular. Punctata, the species name punctata, means spotted, think punctuation and is uh, for the spotted bee balm. I guess it probably has little freckles on the flower petal. And then there's the citriadora, which is lemon scented, although I have not smelled it myself. I have heard from other people that maybe it's not super lemon scented, but that is how it got its species name. And then the general category of horse mint basically refers to large and coarse type of plants or mint plants. So I am uh, going to be referring to the Monarda Didyma and Monarda Fistulosa. How are they different? They're different. They're quite different, actually. They are different in how they look. So as I was saying, the Didyma is red, the Fistulosa is pale purple. The Didyma has kind of like More fuzzy, hairy, soft, and larger leaves, and a slightly hairy stem. And the fistulosa has more smooth, almost like a waxy, oily feel to the leaves, and also to the stem. The stem tends to be smaller and can also get this beautiful, like, purple color to it when it's about to bloom. It's almost like The purple that turns into the flower works its way up the stem. And then when it turns purple, it's almost like the stem isn't purple anymore. I don't know. It's pretty cool. And, I, you know, I find, again, the Didyma very uh, sweet and mild and delicious. And it makes a very flavorful tea, more citrusy. The Monarda Fistulosa is like way intense, it's very spicy, very hot, it's super high in essential oils, or volatile oils, I should say, that are found in oregano and thyme, but are actually more concentrated in this plant. Menard, so the way I remember them, because sometimes I had a hard time remembering, okay, which one's didyma, and which one's fistulosa? The The Monarda Fistulosa is so intense in flavor, it's almost like getting punched in the face, I feel like sometimes. And so I just think of the fist and the fistulosa, like that's the stronger, that's the more medicinal, a little bit more poisonous, although it's not poisonous to us, but it's more medicinal. And the Didyma is milder and sweeter. That's how I remember them. Growing them is very easy to grow. They're as easy to grow as mint, although they do have some um, some pests that like them. Powdery mildew is very common on bee balms for whatever reason, I'm not sure. Even on the fistulosa, which is very high in volatile oils, which is surprising to me because the volatile oils are quite antifungal, but especially in um, like a rainy season, if you're having a rainy, damp summer or very foggy summer, like here on the coast of Maine, it can really bring in the powdery mildew. Um, or in plant nurseries, if they're not really careful and they overwater and the plants are too close to each other and there's not a lot of aeration, I find you have to be careful when you buy these plants at nurseries because they might come with the powdery mildew. They can have some insect pests, again, not a lot because they do have these volatile oils, but I have in the past, especially last year, had problems with budworms where you might not notice it at first, but they're these little worms and maybe it's because, you know, it's such a common plant to the moths and butterflies that they lay their eggs in the flowers too. And so then these little worms appear. And you might not notice them or you might not notice the eggs that are there until after you harvest the flowers and the leaves and you're drying them. And then all of a sudden, this happened to me last year, I looked on my drying rack and the flowers were looked eaten and there was like little caterpillar poops and little caterpillars. And I was like, Oh, bummer. Guess I'm going to compost these or feed them to the chickens, but not that's only really an issue with the flowers, not an issue with the leaves. And it's not super common. So it's not something that you would necessarily expect from year to year. But last year when we did have them, It was definitely around the whole island, like I noticed in different gardens that I tended in different locations, um, they all had these budworms for whatever reason. I guess whatever the butterfly or whoever was spreading the eggs was uh, abundant that year here. And they're mostly deer resistant, like definitely deer will be eating lots of plants around them and usually won't eat the the Didyma or the Fistulosa. Definitely probably not the Fistulosa, although I have had some deer eat the Didyma, especially ones that I buy at nurseries, because again, they're not as high in the volatile oils, which would normally repel deer. They are perennial, at least these two variety or these two species are perennial as I said, they grow on rhizomes, and they can grow to be quite tall, like, you know, eye level height, so between five and six feet tall. And it's really important to cut them back in the fall, like most mints, so that they will regrow. Sometimes if you let your mint plants go to seed, and you don't cut them back in the fall, then they'll just be they won't come back the next year because they'll just be like oh well i did my deed i spread my seed and i guess i'm done but if you keep cutting back your mints then they'll keep coming back for you it's also good to deadhead your bee balm which gives you longer blooming time and gives you bushier plants so when i say deadhead it means if the flowers are going by or they're spent that you cut down to where the the leaves below the flowers come out. So there'll be the, the flower head, a little bit of leaves under the flower, and then the stem, and then your next set of leaves. And so you wanna cut just above that next set of leaves and it will allow the stem to branch out from that place. And you'll often get two stems coming up from there and possibly even two new flower heads. So it's a way to make your mint plant, any mint plant, but your bee balm specifically bushier instead of just growing in one stalk. And that's how you would want to harvest your flowering tops as well. I like to harvest bee balm when it's in bloom. And I harvest down... Um, You know, like the top third of the stem, and then to the right above um, a leaf node where the leaves come out, so that it allows the plant to heal quickly, and then also to send up new stems from that place where you cut. I also like to think about planting it where I'm gonna see it because it's so beautiful and you can really get some really good uh, nature viewing with the hummingbirds and the bees and the butterflies. So that's really nice. I'm actually surprised at how little this herb is written about in popular herbals, and it makes me realize the large focus on European herbs in popular herbal literature, which I understand because many have become our common weeds. And now, and ever more popular Asian and Indian herbs are also really heavily written about. So there's not like a whole lot of books that write about bee balm. And then even the ones that do write about them is, you know, they don't necessarily go into a lot of detail. Although Matthew Wood uh, does go into a lot of detail in his uh, book. Oh, sorry, I'm forgetting the name of it. But it's the really thick uh, Materia Medica herbal book that he has well worth checking out and henriette kress she is a finnish herbalist and she has written um, at least two books the practical herbal and practical herbal 2 which have been translated into english and are available to purchase and in the practical herbal 2 she does have a nice chapter on bee balm and it's even on the cover. The citriadora is on the cover of her practical herbal too. So thank you, Henriette Cress. But I would say, you know, this whole not having a lot of written information about bee balm in the common literature is also evidence of the effects of colonialism on modern day American herbalism. You know, it just shows us that we have a lot of our common weeds and common herbal medicines come from the colonists or from other ways but have traveled here overseas from Europe and have naturalized which quite honestly I think is wonderful because I love those common weeds and I love that they are growing here amongst us in North America and that we don't have to import them and that they are abundant and, you know, it's, they're wonderful plants. So I'm not upset about that. Um, And it also shows that, you know, those tend to be the plant, the European plants are the ones that tend, and even especially even the Asian and Indian plants of late tend to be the ones that are honored and revered in modern American herbalism. But at the same point in time, that might be a good thing because bee balm is not, even though it's not super popular, um, I really don't see it growing a lot in the wild. Actually, I never see it growing a lot in the wild, at least in New England. I've never seen it growing wild in Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, or Maine. That doesn't mean that it doesn't grow wild in those places but I have never seen it. So if you do see pest stands and fields of wild bee balm, honor it, you know, let it live, harvest very tiny amounts of it, or don't harvest it at all. Grow your own patch because it is very easy to grow. And I do, I plant it in as many gardens as I possibly can. And incorporate it into most of my garden designs again it's great for pollinator gardens cut flower gardens tea gardens medicine gardens just beautiful perennial flower gardens Uh, it's easy to grow and honestly it does not take much plant material to make a four or eight ounce tincture and Because it's more of a medicinal plant than a nourishing plant, you really don't need to have a lot of it in your home apothecary uh, to, you know, for an annual or two year supply. You could even grow it in a pot and you'd be able to grow enough for yourself uh, to harvest and make medicine from for years to come. And you could even, you know, maybe bring the pot inside in the winter or and just kind of let it go dormant. Or you could put a bunch of straw or some straw bales or some sort of mulch around the pot to protect the roots from like the really cold winters. And it might regrow in the spring. I don't know. I haven't tried it, but seems like it might be something that would work. So go out there, find yourself some bee balm, and get growing. But wait, Bridget, why do I even want to grow this plant? Okay, I should probably get into the herbal properties, medicinal properties of this plant to really endear you to her. It's funny, I did have a one person who took my... Um, nourishing herbal infusion course called Nourish Yourself. And I, I like to, you know, I like to talk about the, it's almost like an introduction to the plant. So I like to talk about the name of the plant and how it got its name and how it's grown. And he was just kind of like, Oh, like that just bores me. Let's get into the good stuff. But I don't know. I like it to like warm you up to the plant. It's like, if you're going to introduce a friend to someone you're not just like oh so this is my friend and they do this in the world and this is their value and this is how they serve people you know and i might start out with like oh this is my friend so and so and this is a little bit about them and where they live and and then you can really get into the how they serve the world so how does bebom serve the world what what Gifts does it offer us and what um how does it relate to the world around it? Well, it's actually has very similar property to a lot of mints. So in general, mints are when I think of mints, I think of digestion, nervous system and antimicrobial if you really want to be super vague and just total balloon statement and then you can like really get into the nitty-gritty from there and break it all down because there are so many different mints in the in the world and they have so many gifts to offer us but if you really want to just think okay it's a mint it's probably going to have something in the in the realm of helping with these things Uh, and generally um, mints may have the ability of bringing on menses and so in really large medicinal amounts they're not recommended for pregnancy okay so with that disclaimer let's get into b-bomb specifically so b-bomb And especially the fistulosa is very heating. It's like really spicy hot, actually, and drying and dispersing, in my experience. It can be both calming and stimulating, which a lot of herbs, if they're one, either calming or stimulating, generally will have the ability to have the opposite effect as well depending on the person that's working with it and how they're working with it. And it's also very antimicrobial because it's so high in these volatile oils, which are all volatile oils, which yield essential oils, are antimicrobial. They kill bacteria, viruses, yeasts, all of it. I would say in general, you can assume that fistulosa is more medicinal, otherwise known as being higher in poisons. And there are some quotes around poisons uh, because, you know, it tends to be the more poisonous parts of the plants that have more medicinal action, but it's not poisonous like it's going to kill you poisonous. It's poisonous that it's going to have a medicinal action on your body. Poisonous to bacteria, absolutely. Poisonous to humans, not so much. And the Didyma, like I said earlier, is much sweeter and gentler in action. Both are effective medicinally, depending on you and your situation. On how sensitive you are, if you're a child, I would definitely start with a didyma versus the fistulosa, especially my child is really sensitive to anything spicy, even peppermint is too spicy for her. And then how serious is your condition? Like, how intense of a medicine do you need? And also, and maybe most importantly, what do you have available to you? So, otherwise, they can be used relatively interchangeably, I would say. Um, if you really want to get into the energetics, probably the fistulosa is going to be a lot more heating than the didyma. So, aids in digestion, any sort of indigestion, gas, bloating, um, and nervous indigestion, especially because it's a mint, so it helps the nervous system. Uh, any sort of nausea it can kind of ease all of that Uh, colicky babies and the Anishinaabe uh, call it the baby saver plant because it is so effective especially the fistulosa for easing the pain or the crying the uncomfortability of the colicky babies as I said anti-infective really strong, volatile oils, antibacterial, anti-yeast. A lot of people use it. Um, I've heard definitely lots of references to people using it if they get chronic vaginal yeast infections or if they feel like they have other yeast issues and other fungus issues, both topically or internally. It's really high, especially the fistulosa, in carvacrol, which is a volatile oil, and thymol, which are both in, well, thyme and oregano. And they're two oils that tend to be analogs or are often found together and maybe even work together. Oregano oil, essential oil, has become really popular, and it's, like, super, super potent. I don't recommend using it at all. But I would say fistulosa is going to be like the closest thing to it. Again, the fistulosa is more concentrated in these oils than oregano and thyme are. And I guess from what I read in World War One, when the fields of thyme were destroyed, because thymol all um, has been extracted from thyme and used... As an antiseptic drug from, you know, World War I days and before that, um, when the time fields were destroyed in the war, horsement, quote unquote horsement, was grown instead in the U.S. to supply uh, the time all manufacturers or distillers. So, thymol now is often synthesized and can be found in lots of, like, cleaning products or antiseptics or mouthwashes, but I don't know if it was the punctata or the fistulosa or which monarda it was that was being grown as a replacement, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway, um antiviral, especially against the herpes family of viruses. And I can tell you that it is extremely effective for that. And I will get into it a little bit in my um, flu story. But in case you don't want to listen to my flu story, or if this podcast is already getting to be too long to listen to, then um, I will say that as the grand finale of once I was recovering from this flu, my immune system was so low. I got the first fever blister in my mouth that I have had in years and it was huge. And I used the fistulosa tincture that I had made like six years ago um, on it directly um, multiple times throughout the day and it was totally gone uh, within, within 36 hours, it was totally gone. It had never even got really extremely bad. It was a really big one, but it never went crazy or got really grotesque or anything. It just dried up really quickly and went away. So I can attest. If As soon as you feel a cold sore coming on, just get out your fistulosa tincture and apply it regularly um, with a cotton swab or a Q-tip or just your finger, whatever, and, or just hold it in your mouth, depending on where the sore is, and it will dry it up and make it go away really quickly. Sore throats. Really excellent for both numbing a sore throat, fighting an infection that's causing the sore throat, um, and just, yeah, eliminating a sore throat. Lung and sinus congestion infections. Um, You can hear me now, like, yes, I still have some congestion in my sinuses, but my nose isn't running. I'm barely coughing um, unless I talk too much. And yeah, it really kind of nips that in the bud and it's very drying to the excess mucus. Steam, it's great. Like if you put it in a steam and this I would only do with the Didyma. I could say from personal experience, I did this. And this is actually why I remember it as fistulosa as like punching you in the face is because I did have a few years ago a you know some sort of sinus infection or congestion that i was working to get rid of and gosh i don't remember if it was dry or fresh fistulosa that i had the light purple uh monarda but i put it in a steam and I, I, you know so in a pot of water that had boiled put the herb in let it sit for a minute, put my head over the steam with a towel, and I breathed in. And I do a lot of steam, so I know it wasn't just like the steam burning me, but it just on fire. Like my whole nose, sinuses, it was painful. It felt like I just snorted cayenne or something, which I've never done. So I actually don't know what that feels like, but who I do not recommend doing a steam with the fistulosa however since then I've done steams with the Didyma the red variety and it's been great and wonderful and smells great and no problems there at all Um, so very diaphoretic and dispersing of heat and fevers again it might heat you up a little bit more first and then become more dispersing afterward. So it could, you know, bring on a sweat and uh, and in so doing, cool you down, but it might heat you up more at first. And I talk about that a little bit with the yarrow, so similar action. Um, and if you want that action, you can drink a hot tea with it. I would be careful with children or even if you have a super high fever, you might not want to do that. I personally, and again, I'll talk about this more later, but I just kind of like to let fevers run their course as long as and just kind of monitor them, but not mess with them too much unless they're getting to a dangerous level, which is like approaching 105, I think is the dangerous from my understanding level. 104.7 104.7 or 0.8 is where you really want to be like, okay, time to cool it down. <clears throat> but at that point, you definitely don't want to take something that's going to be even more heating because it could put you over the edge. Uh, urinary tract infections, it's known to be really beneficial to, in fighting. And then I saw, again. I haven't used it for this, but in the literature that I read, I have seen uh, people, especially in old literature, um, like in shaker literature and other things, uh, brief mention that it was used um, for like ex people who have excess urination to kind of reduce urination. Which is interesting because I think I've also seen it could be a mild diuretic. But again, that's that amphoteric effect that these herbs can often have. Um where sometimes, you know, they'll work one way and sometimes they'll work another way. And even with the, the diaphoretic versus diuretic, um, I often find that herbs that are one, that are diaphoretic often can be diuretic. And a lot of times people say that, you know, if you want a diaphoretic action, you drink a hot cup of tea of the herb. And if you want a diuretic action... Um, or even maybe an action to bring on immensities, you drink a cold cup of tea. Headache relief. It's known to really kind of like also like break up kind of congestion and maybe even energetic congestion in the head, relieving headaches. And again, a lot of the old literature and the Native American references uh, to the use of the plant is that they would just kind of um crumple up a leaf and stick it up the nose for headache relief not something I've tried although I don't know sometimes headaches you'll try anything to get rid of them so I might try that if I get one again this summer why not also very few herbs um you hear mention of in relieving tinnitus and this one I have seen multiple, and Matthew Wood speaks very highly of it in his book, multiple references in other books as well as it being uh, relieving to tinnitus. So that's something to try if tinnitus plagues you. Another herb that people talk about um, that being helpful for tinnitus is ground ivy, glaucoma heteraceae. So those are the only ones I've heard of. If you've heard of other ones, let me know. I'd be curious. Or if you have experience with either of them, I'd like to know. Um, Also, topically, Monarda can be applied topically. So, oh, I didn't even talk about the name bee balm. Well, it attracts bees, but also can be a balm to bee stings. So if you're harvesting it and the bees are swarming you because they're like, oh, I want bee balm. Um, you can and you get stung then you can do a spit pull spit poultice with the leaf directly on the bee sting and it is an automatic anti-inflammatory astringent and soothes that now it's interesting and it's talked about uh, Matthew Wood again in his book he has a huge chapter on it so I am referencing him a lot Um, but he talks about um, how sometimes hot herbs can be beneficial for hot energetic situations. And you don't really hear that as much in when we talk about energetic herbs, you think, okay, I have like a hot situation. I want to apply something cold. And he compares it to, you know, if you get a really hot scalding burn and you put like really cold water on it directly, it can actually um, be more irritating and can, yeah, can make it harder to heal. And so sometimes applying like warm water to a burn is more beneficial than really cold water. And so he was relating that to the fact that this is like a really hot herb but it can be applied topically to burns to help to heal them or topically to any sort of like hot skin eruption, uh, pimples, or like, like a bee sting would be like a hot skin thing, right? Because it burns, it's hot, it's red, it's inflamed. And it can actually be a counter to those things. It's also considered a counter irritant topically. So I've actually never experienced like, well, other than that steam that I had that like topically on my skin of it burning. Definitely when I take the tincture straight in my mouth, especially of the fistulosa, it it burns. It's very pungent. It it it's not a lasting burn, but it is hot and spicy for sure. But it can be beneficial topically for concerns and then Yeah, easing PMS menstrual pains. Again, it has this slightly antispasmodic property that most mints have. Um, So it can, both for the digestive system and for menstrual pains. Um, PMS, because it helps with the nervous system and then it can bring on a delayed menses insomnia um, can just be very calming to the nervous system. But then again, again, with these amphoteric herbs and a lot of sedative herbs can also be stimulating and vice versa, depending on who you are and how you use them. And then very high in antioxidants, um, similar to oregano and thyme and can be substituted in food for oregano and thyme and almost have more of a flavor of oregano and thyme than the plants themselves. So lots of benefits to Monarda. And I talked about a little bit of the harvest, how to easily harvest it already. And then when I harvest it, then I just will lay it out in either big open baskets or on screens or hang them you know by two or three stems upside down to dry or I will make a tincture with them um, I will take dry or fresh herb to make a tea uh, you can infuse them in honey you could make an herbal syrup with them which I've never done but I'm actually really intrigued um, especially for sore throats or colds or flus especially the didyma for children would be really nice Um, I often make tinctures with them, which is really easy to do. And so what I'm going to do, actually last summer, I made a quick, a short little video about, um, making, uh, Didyma tincture. So I'm going to post that on my Instagram, um, tomorrow. So you can check that out on the Solidago Herb School or the, um, Healthy Herb Podcast Instagram and see a quick way of making a tincture. And then I also talk about how to make how to use the tincture. You could also infuse it in vinegar for a tasty vinegar um, and that's full of antioxidants. And then you can apply it topically as a spit poultice or a compress. So lots of ways that you can work with the herb. I don't really have time in this podcast to go into the details of how you can make all of those things, but those recipes and are pretty easy to find for general, um, how you make all of those herbal remedies in general are easy to find on the World Wide web, YouTube, whatever, and it's pretty universal, but for, um, also check out my Instagram for how to make an easy tincture. And I'll be, if you're still with me and you're still interested in how I actually worked with both Yarrow and Minarda to get me through this flu in just a short couple days, then stick with me and I'll be right back. All right, well, thanks for sticking with me. So, gosh, it seems like my podcasts just get longer and longer (laughs) the more I do it. I'll rein it in, I swear, one of these days. Uh, Okay, so my flu story. Well, it all started. No, so my daughter um, is six. She just turned six, and she goes to a day camp for the summer because I am a landscape gardener, and I need childcare. And she's an only child. They can do a lot more for her at camp in a summer than I can as a mom in her forties. But anyway, she came home the first week of camp with, uh, some sort of viral flu fever, you know, sore throat, runny nose, cough. She got through it in four or five days. And, um, Let's see. That was about a month ago. And, you know, basically, I offered her a little bit of yarrow tea. It's pretty bitter. So I put a little bit of honey in it. She would drink it, but only in small amounts, little tiny sips. And really, that's, I think, all she needed just as a little fever maintenance and antimicrobial mostly is why I was giving it to her. And then I also had a chamomile tea going for her, which is more, I got a lot more compliance with chamomile tea just to kind of calm her and soothe her and um, also has those volatile oils, which are antimicrobial. And then after, once she was through the fever and on the other end of things, when she had a cough, the herb that I worked with with her, which I love for these like spasmodic coughs is anise hyssop. Again, a really nice flavored tea for children and adults. And I basically just made a big pot of tea. And anytime she coughed, I made her take a sip of the tea and I gave, put a little honey in it and her cough went away pretty quickly. So that's Isla's my do- my daughter's story, flu story. Just a quick intro. So I was taking care of her. I never got sick, but whoo, I had it's been a full-on summer, I tell you. I've been working myself obviously to the bone and We've had a lot of visitors grateful for the visitors, a lot of family visiting. So with work and social, I just ran myself down. And it gave this virus, which I think is the same one that my daughter had, which was probably in me, but my immune system was keeping it at bay, it gave it a chance to get a hold. And basically, you know, it's, my body's life's way of saying, okay, Bridget, like sit down, just stop. Like the only way we're going to make you stop is by making you just lie down for a day and do absolutely nothing. So it came on, I had all the same symptoms that Isla had with her flu. And whew, it just, you know, I had started with the sore throat. And then by Sunday night, I knew I was not, I was fighting something. So I found my yarrow tincture and I started taking little sips. So I, you know, I just keep my tinctures in bottles. I don't have them in dropper bottles because I feel like they just start tasting like rubber really quickly. Um, and I store my tinctures for a long time because I, I make so much of them and I just kind of took little sips. I was already pretty exhausted just off of my yarrow jar. Um, It was already down to the bottom of the jar. And this was the pink wild yarrow from, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before that I made it. Um, But I ended up finishing the jar on Monday. So Sunday night, taking sips, went to bed, um, You know, definitely had a fever, had a sweat in the morning. I was so sick. I could not, I couldn't talk. I knew I couldn't drive my daughter to camp. So I told her she was staying home with me and she had to play by herself. Most of the day, I would hang out in the living room with her, but I was basically laid out on the couch with a fever, very able to do very very little I basically just drink water I was able to make myself a linden infusion um, and which is and I weighed out an ounce of the whole linden flowers put it in a quart jar uh, filled it with boiling water and just let it sit on the counter basically all day and then in the evening I had a little bit of energy where I could strain it out and put it in the fridge, and I honestly didn't even start drinking it till Tuesday. But I knew I had it on hand, um, so I was just drinking uh, water. My husband was is a lobster fisherman, so he was out from four in the morning till six that night. They had a really long day, so it was just me and my daughter, and. Um, yeah so i just i basically slept all day and then i just i had my yarrow my bottle my jar of yarrow tincture with me and i just sipped on it the sore throat went away relatively quickly i don't even think i woke up with the sore throat so that went away the first night and the yarrow i think really helped with that so i find that when i'm working with tinctures In acute situations, like a fever or a flu or a cold, my mission is to have the bottle of tincture next to me at all times and to take very small amounts, but very frequently. And I think that that's the best way to do it. So that's what I was doing with the yarrow whenever I maybe coughed or woke up from a nap or anytime I thought of it, I would just take a little sip and then chase it with some water. Sometimes, I mean, I knew that I was going to finish that tincture, so I just drank it out of the jar. If I knew, if I didn't think I was going to finish that whole bottle of tincture, then I would be, I'd put it in a shot glass um, and take a sip off of the shot glass or put it in my water bottle with um, water and then just be constantly sipping the water with the tincture in it. Then, um, so yeah, that took me through Monday, done biscuit, Monday night, um, back in bed, sweat again, and Tuesday I woke up, my fever was gone, like I said earlier, I had a huge fever blister, which I have never, I have not had one in years in my mouth, because obviously my immune system put all of its energy into getting taking care of that one virus that I was fighting. So whatever other random viruses gave gave them a chance to get hold that were in my body. And so Tuesday, I had I, I'd already planned on b- doing this B-Bomb podcast. So I was like, well, I'm going to rest today. I was able to get my daughter to camp. I could drive and I got her to camp. I was feeling much better, but I just before I started working, I just knew I needed a day of rest, I needed to start eating a little bit of food, and um, just kind of get my strength back. And so I was, you know, doing this B-bomb research and writing all my notes out. And I was like, okay, Bridget, read the writing on the wall, go get your B-bomb picture off the shelf and start taking it. So I did. And Um, yeah, it was so helpful, you know, it, and again, I took it the same way, the yarrow. Um, I just buy the sip off. I have this four ounce bottle. I have it right next to me too. Still, um, I actually made this tincture in 2014 and I have it in a Boston round amber bottle. 4-ounce bottle, and I've gone through, oh, more than half of it. It was almost full, and I've gone through more than half of it, so about over 2 ounces from yesterday and today, so maybe an ounce a day. And I just would sip on it and wash it down with a little bit of water. I'd apply it directly to the cold sore that was inside my mouth, and that never gave me hassle. It was never sore. It dried up really quickly and is totally gone now. And it was a big one. It took up like a quarter of my lip, my bottom lip, the inside of my bottom lip. Um, yeah, and anytime I have like a little cough, um, I'll just take a sip of this. And I carried it with me all day today. And that's basically what I did. And so I just you know, as time goes on, as I start feeling better and better, I'll just take less and less of it. But every time I caught, I just use like, okay, if I'm caught, if I have a cough, that's like my, my little self made alarm clock to take a sip. And I just have found it to be super beneficial. Um, so that's my short of the long getting through, Uh, Summer Flu with Yarrow and Bee Balm. I really appreciate you sticking with me through the end. Maybe it's taking you a few times to get through through this. I know sometimes I'll listen to podcasts. I'll take a couple times to actually get through the whole thing, but I appreciate it. So thank you. And if you appreciate me or if you appreciate this podcast or Um, What I'm putting out there, then I would love it if you would rate and review the podcast. Uh, Rating it's really easy. All you have to do is like push, push the star, the number, the five star or the four star or whatever you like um, and review even just a few words is great. I want to thank you to the two people who have given me reviews so far. I am very grateful for that, and it's really nice to get the feedback. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, my website, um, all under Solodago Herb School. Uh, or you can check out the Healthier Podcast on Instagram. I think it's just Healthier Podcast, not with the the. Thanks for listening. I'm Bridget Doherty. Until next week, be well, let intuition guide you, and most importantly, have fun with herbs.